We're very happy to have you for the second year in a row. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, so you had a very busy year, I know. Um, you are based in Hong Kong now, moving, having moved from Hershey, Pennsylvania. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, you know, the lessons you learned in the last year, other than, I'm sure, two teenagers <laughs> being really mad at you for moving them across the country? Um, and a little bit about, you know, last year you talked about some really aggressive goals in terms of deploying capital right away from the billion dollar fund. So how's everything been going? Yeah, so this is a, an awkward conversation with my boss, Jonathan Larson. My KPIs that uh, Katya alluded to were very dramatic. I, I was going to deploy $175 million of capital. I was going to make eight investments. Um, it seemed obvious that that was possible. We had a, a very supportive CEO of the company, um, a strategic mandate to really build on to the wonderful healthcare assets that we have, including our telemedicine platform. It seemed too easy. We know that there was wonderful innovators around the world, especially here in the Valley. And I think where I went wrong was not realizing the scope of a big company and the necessity to proceed quite slowly through multiple investment committee approvals, through diligence processes, and, and really in a way that coming from medical science in a university context, I was not familiar with. So I. Um, I think we were chatting just before we came on that I think I achieved about a third of my capital deployment target and about half of the companies um, that I wanted to invest in. So it's, it's my great hope that building on some of the lessons that we've learned internally, we can accelerate these processes. And I think, you know, I'm optimistic, uh, a bonus depends on it and bringing companies into our fold depends on that too. So. And so I know it's complicated in the sense that you're looking to invest in companies that have applicability to China, right? So a lot of entrepreneurs see that as obviously a massive opportunity, such a large population. Uh, but there's a lot of lessons they need to learn before trying to enter the Chinese market. You wrote a great piece in the second issue of the Startup Health magazine about that. So I think it could be helpful to share to folks in the room. What should people be thinking of when they think of going to market in China or seeking investment from Chinese venture capitalists? Right. Right, so that's a great question. So, you know, I, I start from a premise as a former physician that human biology is essentially the same anywhere in the world, and even genetics are very, very similar, almost identical. Um, you'd think from that that healthcare is roughly similar around the world, short of a few variations. Um, to my great surprise, I mean, we have very different practice patterns in, in the U.S. compared to in China. I mean, we, we just had two great uh, behavioral health presentations, and uh, just in terms of the raw prevalence of things such as uh, pediatric uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, it's about 6% in both countries. Um, here, almost half of those children would be treated. Uh, in China, very few of them get treated. So if you're taking, a, say, a biopharmaceutical approach and looking at a huge market size, the fact that just the culture and the practice patterns don't support that kind of treatment mean your, your innovation is maybe not as successful. So there's a lot of learning that I've had to do to adjust a very US Western-centric lens from Australia and the US and try to transplant that and learn more about China. And I think one of the first things I talk about with uh, new firms that we meet is, look, what do you understand about China? What do you understand about how your innovation might work? What's the business model through which you hope to deploy that? How would you see yourself working in this very alien context? Uh, because it is a completely different country. And so I think that is something that we can help as a partner, even in the early stages, even before investment, even without investment. Uh, we've had some great conversations, including uh, with Valera, um, about how we can help bridge that gap between US medicine and Chinese medicine. And one of the things that you mentioned in the article um, 
is just the different cost structure. So people are just spending so much less on healthcare and they have much less insurance coverage. Right. So what do you think it's going to take to make an impact on you know the average Chinese citizen, including in rural parts of China? So it's, I mean, one, one of the things is you can appeal to an economic argument and see that you know, at 8% per year, we're gonna double in something like uh, seven or eight years, and eventually we'll get to disposable income that can support US type prices, or at least European prices. But I think today, if you're outside of an eight to 30 yuan price point for your product or service, that's like a buck to five bucks maybe. You're, you're gonna be struggling to pick off enough people from that huge market that can really afford to pay. And I think part of it is the, the culture and the practice where the state health insurance funds pay for just about everything, making co-payments very small. So while you might think people would be willing to pay out of pocket for your product and service, in general, people will feel more comfortable to go to a AAA hospital, queue up for seven hours and see someone at a co-payment of $1.50. And so that's the kind of point that you're competing with. Um, how do we uh, constructively address that is we try to meet those price points. We try to have software as a service delivered as cheaply as possible to cheap locations. We've just, we're just about to announce, and I, I'm happy to sort of share a little bit of it here. Um, we've invested in a retinal imaging AI firm uh, based in China, a company called AirDoc, which is using cloud-based SaaS-delivered services to very cheap clinics looking at the eyes, very much like IDX and Google have done here in America, and inferring what's the, the status of their diabetes, their hypertension, et cetera. Um, we're able to offer that price point at, at literally the dollar to two dollars that they need to do, and so it becomes an affordable service. So I think the lesson for us is always trying to think, well, how does this great innovation scale up in such a way that it still remains affordable for, yeah. uh, for Chinese consumers? And you have such an interesting uh, advantage in the sense that uh, Ping On has this platform, Ping On Good Doctor, which, which had a billion dollar IPO last year. Um, in your scouting for investment opportunities, how often are you looking for solutions? And maybe you can tell people kind of the, the breadth and sure. reach of Ping On Good Doctor and um, you know, the opportunity there. Sure. So we're, we're all extremely proud of our telemedicine platform. We, like many people in the States and elsewhere, we see telemedicine as a vital way of offering people affordable services at their home um, in a way that can use AI and complement more expensive human physicians. We, um, we have this wonderful Ping on Good Doctor telemedicine platform, 231 million registered users, uh, monthly active users about 30 million, uh, daily consults are about 530,000 as of about three months ago. Um, these numbers are doubling pretty much every year. So we're able to reach an awful lot of people. We use a mixture of 1,000 plus physicians that we employ internally, 6,000 contracted physicians, and a very sophisticated AI uh, symptom checking triage engine to meet the demand of this half a million plus consultations. Um, one of the things that we see this telemedicine platform expanding into is with better front-end diagnostics, right? So rather than you clicking on a quadrant of your belly where you have some pain, what if we could have a, you know, a smart stethoscope, listen to some bowel sounds, listen to some breath sounds, heart sounds? What if we could have an IoT sensor uh, look at your, your urine and check whether you have a bladder infection? And what if this information could be conveyed through the telemedicine backbone and help inform the diagnostics? Were we able to do that, we could carve out a much bigger segment of care beyond just the self-limited acute illnesses to maybe more chronic care uh, and more richer conditions which are more expensive for healthcare systems. Mm -hmm. And this could give 
people the tools you know in their own home and yeah. with, without any intervention from from a physician or that's a, in the rural communities. That's our belief, and we, we invested in TidoCare, an Israeli home-based uh, diagnostic monitoring kit supplier, and we really see an opportunity for similar IoT devices, whether they be more specialized, such as uh, Avicina's great product for looking at carotid ultrasounds and inferring left heart function, uh, companies like Respirix um, and uh, other countries that are looking at um, new types of hardware to sense conditions um, within the, the body, not just the typical vital signs monitoring, but going beyond that. So there is a company in Israel that we've looked at called Beyond Verbal, which does amazing work to infer heart failure exacerbations based on the tone of voice on a call center call. Not the semantic content, not the words, my ankles are swelling up, but the words, it's a Tuesday morning, uh, how are you? And from that tone, inferring things to do with your health. Um, we're excited by that entire front end, whether it's in vivo diagnostics, the IoT sensors, whether it's in vitro diagnostics. One of our other acquisitions this year was a stake in an uh, Israeli proteomics company called Mimed, which uses three protein signatures to distinguish bacterial versus viral infections. Um, and then in silico, for example, the AirDoc investment to look at imaging AI and do that pretty close to home, certainly away from the hospital. So because it is such a jewel in our crown, we do focus a lot of our efforts around that. But there's other therapeutic areas and other, uh, other parts of the healthcare value chain that we look at as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I know you've seen some really interesting deals, really interesting companies, and you've been traveling the world. And one thing I think is very interesting is how you've immersed yourself in the Chinese healthcare system, visiting hospitals all over the country. and. Um, even just throughout Asia. So that anything you've learned that was very surprising to you um, and just sort of getting deep under the covers of understanding the system there? I think the probably the biggest lesson that I've learned is I, I grew up in Australia. I practiced primary care in Australia. I'm used to very well-functioning primary care systems that act as gatekeepers that are close and easily accessible, often subsidized, um, and that provide a great first line of defense in a healthcare system. What I've found, and it continues to surprise me, is how in China, that's really absent. There is nothing between your home and a AAA quaternary or tertiary hospital that most people would trust. So people will queue up at literally the most expensive, most complex, most sophisticated source of care, um, rather than going to clinics, which are available, but are just not trusted yet. So I think part of our mission uh, in the healthcare ecosystem in China is to help build that trust be an honest broker, help to educate patients, help to show quality is not necessarily different across different parts of the, the value chain. And so I think that's been one lesson. The other lesson has just been how even a rich country as China is becoming, there is not enough to bring and backfill all the human physicians, human nurses that you need to run a healthcare system. So there is literally no option for us as a country in China except for using AI and using innovation to fill a gap that cannot earthly be filled with money and humans. Mm -hmm. So in some way, there's no option. We have to do this business. Everything we do is oriented to filling that need and, and helping bridge that gap. Definitely a, a lot ahead of you, a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. Um, but it, but you're, you're onto it. So then when you think back on, you know, last year you, you learned a lot and you didn't deploy as much capital as you thought, um, but for very good reasons. How do you balance you know, risk-taking versus failure? And I think that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs 
are frustrated by. You know, when they're pitching uh, VCs, they have such a belief in their moonshot, in the way that they're addressing problems. Right. And, you know, investors always want to see more data first, more traction. Um, you know, sometimes I'm sure you meet companies where you just, you want to take a risk because you believe in your gut that, that they have what it takes. Mm. And then of course, you know, you're, you're a corporate backed venture fund and, and you've got an investment committee. So how do you balance those two dynamics? It is a continuous trade-off, as yeah. you're alluding to. And you know, I, I tend to be, a, from a scientific perspective, a great advocate for most of the companies that I see. I recognize the need that they're seeking to fill. I'm enthused by their passion. And most of the time, you hope and you know that these companies will eventually find a backer of some sort. So when it's not us, it's not something to do with that firm. It's often, to your point, risk tolerance and, and thesis on our side. So I think that's the first lesson, really, is it's not that you didn't do the right job or that it was too risky. It was just that we are not necessarily the right person for you or maybe this is not the right time. And I think you know, the other point of view is that there are different VCs with different strengths in certain areas. So we, we don't do a lot of work in biotherapeutics. So this morning I met with a great company called Cyclica. And I'm coming from a very low information base. We've seen Benevolent AI, we've seen Berg, but we haven't seen the 100 plus companies in this space where we're much less well-informed. So it becomes a little bit more tricky for someone like us to get up that learning curve. And there's maybe other VCs that focus much more in that space. We have, a, we have probably six or seven groups within Ping An that do healthcare investing. We have a separate unit distinct from us called Ping An Ventures, led by, uh, among others, uh, Jiang Zhang, uh, who do very comfortably do large investments in biotherapeutics. So they led team unities 100 plus million around last, uh, beginning of last year. And so these are companies that we're in touch with and you know, if there's certain areas where we're not able to you know, credibly persuade our investment committee, that's a, a call that can be made within our group and there may be another backer. So it's still ping on money, it's just maybe a different phase. Right. So in, in less than a minute uh, to round out, what is your personal health moonshot? My personal health moonshot, as you can see by looking at me, I need to lose probably 40 to 50 pounds. Um, it's not easy, and I, as I, I'm well past 40, but it, the damage started at 40, and so my moonshot is kind of like, just reach the top of this hill called 45 pounds. If I can do that, I know that a lot of my health challenges would go away, right? My joints would be better, my blood pressure would be lower, I'd feel more energetic, I'd be great fun for my kids. So I, I need to take personal responsibility for that. It's my personal moonshot, and if I come back again, maybe next year, you can uh, judge me on the success of that. <laughs> We'd be happy to. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you.